This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 61. Well, the starting point I really think is having a learning plan. I view learning as one of the two foundations of every successful translation. The other is connecting. If you're learning and connecting, then you're laying a really solid foundation, typically, for a successful transition. And part of the learning piece is how do you speed up that learning process without making it superficial? How do you learn with a point of view? How do you how do you come in and not make assumptions, but test hypotheses? How do you balance your learning between the technical dimension of the organization, the culture, politics, just being thoughtful about how you put together that learning plan? And then what do you do even almost in a structured way to speed it up? What is HR's role in accelerating the successful transition of new leaders into their organization? Why is it important that all new leaders have a learning plan? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Michael Watkins, who's a leadership transition expert and best-selling author of The First 90 Days, Proven Strategies for Getting Up to Speed Faster and Smarter, which the economists call the Onboarding Bible. With over a million copies sold, The First 90 Days is a classic reference for leaders in transition and a standard learning development resource for executive onboarding. If you've not read The First 90 Days, I recommend that you do it. It's both strategic and pragmatic, and it is a must-read for all HR leaders. Michael's also the founder of Genesis Advisors, which is a global leadership development consultancy specializing in the transition acceleration for leaders, teams, and organizations. He's also a professor of leadership and organizational change at IMD Business School. And he's got a terrific new book coming out in January called The Six Disciplines of Strategic Thinking, Leading Your Organization into the Future, which I'm excited about. And as you can tell, I'm a big fan of the first 90 days, and it was an incredible honor to sit down with Michael and discuss what effective leadership transitions look like and what has changed since he first published his book. In my conversation with Michael today, we'll discuss how organizations can accelerate the transition of new leaders into their roles, how remote and hybrid work has impacted leadership transitions, why it's critical that new leaders come in with a learning plan and how to create one why he believes integration is more important than orientation, why organizations need to be more clear on who owns leadership transitions, and why he believes that people can develop strategic thinking skills and much, much more. Michael, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? Delighted to be here. Excited to have the conversation. Well, I'm excited to have you as well because I'm a big fan of your work and I have used the first 90 days several times throughout my career and recommended more times than I can remember to people who are transitioning roles. And so it's really an honor to have you on the podcast. And I think it's important that every HR leader knows about the work, not only what you've done in the past, but you've got some great work coming up that we'll talk about today, that new book that we're excited about. So we'll get into that. But I want to start off just talking about when you wrote the first 90 days, been almost 20 years, I think. So that's pretty amazing. It's stand the test of time. 
Not many books can do that. But hybrid and remote work was not really the thing it is today. How has hybrid and remote work really changed how we think about successfully transitioning to a new role? Yeah, so as you said, I wrote the book originally back in 2003. I updated it in a second edition in 2013, so it was kind of the 10-year anniversary. And at that point, I probably 40% new content because a lot had changed in that decade. And I'm actually right in the process of writing the third edition now because since 2013, as you just pointed out, a huge amount has changed. One big piece of which is hybrid work. We can talk about other things that have changed, you know, the speed of things has changed. The need for transformation has changed. I've also learned quite a bit in the intervening decade about transitions, which we can talk about if you want. But the reality now is often forms of hybrid work. We're in a little bit of a funny time where companies are pushing return to work. We're really heading back to something that involves more in-person interaction, which I think is good from some points of view, right? It's great if it generates the creativity, if it generates the connectivity, if it helps support the culture that you want to create. It's not good if it pushes people out of your organization because they've organized their lives around a different kind of way of being, but we'll see how that all boils down, right? One big piece of work I've done in the past few years, what I call multimodal leadership, which is the capacity to lead both when you're with people, but also when you're operating in a more virtual environment. And that really starts with what is best done together and what can you realistically do when you're operating more in that kind of, you know, truly virtual environment. One big worry I have, by the way, is that people, companies will bring people back together and have them doing things that they could be doing at home on Zoom. Anytime you look around an office and you've had all these people brought together and they're sitting on Zoom conferences, something has gone wrong with your thinking about how to make virtual work happen. Understanding that today, when people are together the way it was when we used to have offsites and take people away to do creative work, the onsite is the new offsite way as I sort of think about it. And so leading to that creativity, leading to that connectivity when you bring people together, but also maintaining that connectivity when you've got people operating virtually, doing the things which are often more operational that you can do well in the virtual environment, and just understanding, I think, that those differences. By multimodal leadership, I literally mean the ability to walk the way you lead depending on the modality that you're, you're operating on. That's going to go into the new edition of the, of the first 90 days. But it also has like big implications for when you're taking a new role. You've got to think about how to onboard often as a leader into this hybrid environment. You're trying to orient yourself to your organization, but much of your interaction may be virtual. We know that it's harder to connect to people deeply across the Zoom or Teams uh, modalities. There really are pretty big implications for how you think about transitioning effectively into a new role. And oh, by the way, how companies can best onboard people into their organizations. Yeah, you're right. A lot has changed. And I love the multimodality piece you're bringing up. And, and I think one of the big struggles that a lot of leaders face, especially early in the pandemic, if you changed jobs and it was fully remote and you're an executive, how do you build trust through a screen? And then, of course, everyone starts talking about, well, I could just close my laptop down on Friday, open up a new laptop on Monday and have changed roles, right, in companies. It feels transactional. What would you say for an executive who's coming in in that kind of hybrid environment, maybe their team, executive team's remote, how do you start to be more intentional about building those relationships and understanding the situation? 
I think you used the right word just as a starting point, which is being intentional. You're not just going to run into people. You're not just going to happen to have conversations with them before or after a meeting. You've got to be much more structured and intentional about connecting. I think what's interesting, I, certainly I've found it with operating virtually, you can do a lot one-to-one virtually. I coach people, right, taking new roles. I've got lots of people I coach who I have never met in person. But we have a very strong relationship because you're able to do that kind of one-to-one across the, across the technology, as it were. But when you're in a group setting, it's very, very different. Connecting with people in a group on Zoom or on Teams is just really super hard to do. So there's a piece that is about being super intentional, planning those meetings, not getting caught in your silo, because we know another thing that tends to happen is people tend to stay within their silos more when they're operating virtually. So you got to force yourself to move outside. And then when you're doing that connecting, really prioritize making one-on-one. This is assuming, by the way, that you can't, I can't actually find a way to sit down with you and have a cup of coffee and get to know you, right? I mean, I always tell folks coming into new roles that if you can get together with your people even once at the start, you should do it because there's tremendous benefits to doing it. But if you can't, this is the next best alternative. No, that's really good advice. You also talked about, you are thinking about and working on updating the first 90 days. I'm excited to hear what that's going to look like. If you can can share on other pieces that you think have changed or tidbits that people should know about thinking about transitions differently in 2023. It's obvious, right? But the pace has just accelerated dramatically. And that's the pace of technological change. It's the pace of organizational change. In the current edition, I'm writing a lot more about transformation and leading transformation than I did before, because these days I think every leader is a transformational leader, right? No one's being taken around and told, hey, everything's basically fine, just don't scratch the furniture, but otherwise relax, right? I mean, not that anyone was ever said that, but there's much more. It's not the first 90 days, it's the first 90 hours, and sometimes it's the first 90 minutes. A really quick side point, people sometimes say that I think transitions take 90 days. I never said that, right? The first 90 days is a planning horizon, right? I want you to use that first 90 days well. I want you to be planful and intentional, again, that wonderful word, about how you get up to speed in that role, how you learn, how you connect, how you plan, how you make decisions. How far you get depends dramatically on the situation you find yourself in. But what I'm also seeing is a compression, right? That people are expected to do more sooner And that's just putting ever more pressure on people. And that's not always good because sometimes people feel pressure to make those early calls or rely on what they've done previously in a way that may not truly serve them or the organization. So that's certainly one thing that's changed a lot. There's also pieces where I've learned a lot more in the intervening time. And maybe we can talk more about those if you're interested, right? But more and more, I focus on the period of time before you actually get into the new role. You can think of it as the fuzzy front end before you're actually sitting in the chair. And how do you really leverage as much as possible that time? It connects to the speed piece because you kind of do now do more with that. There's also a piece, I mean, I, I love working with people when I can work with them before they're formally in the job, because we can then plan how you're going to show up in this new role. What messages are you going to send? What symbolic actions are you going to take? In what order Are you going to meet people to make sure you're not sending the wrong messages about the organization, right? You can be much more focused on on that arrival and arriving well piece. And then I think there's a whole piece too about managing yourself through this time. 
through these transitions, I was trained as an engineer originally, right? I have a fairly technical, rational approach to things. In the previous two editions of Person Ideas, I, I wrote a chapter about managing yourself. And it's basically about planning well, have a plan, have priorities, right? The new edition, I'm writing much more about how do you maintain emotional equilibrium as you run through this very challenging time? How do you mobilize and focus your energy? To me, increasingly, leadership is about energy. And you can't hope to mobilize and focus other people's energy if you can't mobilize and focus your own. There's been a real deepening of my understanding of that kind of more inner leader component of the transition equation, as it were. There's a lot to unpack there, Michael. And I'd love to see the kind of just the deepening of this energy and your equilibrium as a leader is so critical. I also have to say, because you read my mind, uh, about Michael Watkins here on my podcast, did you actually say 90 days? Because everyone starts to say it's 90 days. And I'm like, well, that's the book. And I think people think it's been compressed. I think it could be longer. So I appreciate you saying that. So we set the record straight. So yeah, it's an easy cut of straw man to kind of hit I would add, right? Which is, he says, transitions take 90 days. Obviously that's wrong. Ergo, he's an idiot. He can't know what he's talking about. There are others like that, by the way. I've seen a few articles written that are basically about the dangers of getting quick wins. And they always say, you know, again, I, I say, I, I try not to refer myself from the third person, right? As little as possible. That's never a good sign. But you know, Michael Watkins says you should go in and get quick wins. I never say that. I say you should get early wins, but what a win is may not be quick. It may not be easy. You always need to focus on what you're doing to create momentum is going to lay a foundation for where you're going to go next. Randomly reaching for the, the low hanging fruit is not at all what I mean. But again, it's an easy straw man to take a shot at. Well, and I think it's always easy to take a 300-page book or so, and we condense that down to a soundbite. The reality is there's a lot to unpack. And we talk about early wins. Who defines the win, right? And what's that win look like? And is that your boss? Is that your team? How does it impact the actual business? And what you see a lot of times, I think, with this compression, and I want to go back to talking about kind of before the rule, because I think I've seen the compression. People are expecting a lot more from executives, especially coming in. And within 30 days, we want to see something measurable. But yep. what that can really end up being is a big mistake because executives or the person coming in for whatever, whatever role hasn't learned what's happened. And they start to try well, to exactly make changes right. without the context. 100%. And you can really set up a very negative feedback loop and you can get leaders into tremendous trouble by doing that because they feel so pressurized to have an impact too early. And I can't be specific about the situation, but... I've encountered one of these right now, someone I'm starting to coach where they've been just given initially a really unrealistic set of expectations for their first 90 days. There's no way they're going to do what they've been asked to do. We're going through the process of renegotiating those expectations with the person they're reporting to, right? It's a tricky thing because you want to walk in and say, there's no way I'm going to do that. But the other side is you don't want to be set up to fail, right? And that's the risk is that you end up being set up to fail if you buy into this. I always tell people, negotiate the terms of engagement with your new boss. Negotiate how long you're going to take to do a diagnosis and then present a plan for what you're going to do. Try to shape the game and not just be a taker of, of whatever they think you should do in a given situation because they're not factoring in the reality that you need to get up the learning curve typically, right? And this is true, by the way, even if you're uh, promoted from within, there's still a substantial learning curve that you need to be working your way up. And there's just no way you're going to, you're going to do that necessarily super quick, but there's often this assumption while you're a leader, 
Revan Sage just go lead? Yeah, I think it makes so much sense. Setting it up, the contracting up front and being thoughtful, having this plan is critical. I've had another great guest, David Dotson, who gave him a quote for this. He said, ideation is faster than implementation. And I was like, it really stuck with me because leaders, as leaders, we have big ideas and we're like, oh, let's do this. But we don't think about how much time it takes to put each of those ideas into action. You're putting work on your team. When you hire someone, you're excited. You've got this list of things they need to go do. And the question is, can they really get that done in 90 days, six months, et cetera? Couldn't agree with you more. It's a horrible situation when you do really, really good stuff, but the bar was set so high that the perception is you were, you failed. A terrible thing to have happen. So how do you get that alignment of expectation and reality is a really critical piece. Let's talk a little bit more about learning before preparing to join the company or before the role. It's kind of that gray area. What should executives or people come into a new organization be thinking about to have that successful transition? Well, the starting point I really think is having a learning plan. Most leaders haven't had exposure to the kind of things I write. They have an intuition for how to go about diagnosing their organizations. And it's workful often, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean they're as systematic as they need to be. Because every day you accelerate your learning is a day you get to make decisions, start to have an impact, and so on. I view learning as one of the two foundations of every successful translation. The other is connecting. If you're learning and connecting, then you're laying a really solid foundation, typically, for a successful transition. And part of the learning piece is how do you speed up that learning process? without making it superficial? How do you learn with a point of view? How do you, how do you come in and not make assumptions, but test hypotheses? How do you balance your learning between the technical dimension of the organization, the culture, politics, just being thoughtful about how you put together that learning plan? And then what do you do even almost in a structured way to speed it up? I was doing a session yesterday for a big European manufacturing company for their top 150 leaders. And, and this kind of came up, this notion of how do you really make sure that you're being planful in the learning process and balancing that learning and connecting with the deciding and acting, with the planning and reflecting to get yourself into a virtuous cycle. Learning, connecting, that is really, really interesting. And I think a lot of us don't really think of it that way, right? We think about meeting some people, figuring out the organizational structure, what the boss wants, Versus how am I learning and connecting it and bringing those dots together and accelerating that? I can give you one really simple example. And again, it came up with this group yesterday. It was the, the person who was heading all the regions for this organization. So really senior person on the leadership team, the organization. And she was talking about a simple technique I have in, in the learning chapter of the first many days, which is early on, ask people the same basic set of questions and see what kinds of answers you get. Where do they agree? Where do they disagree? Where are they volunteering? Where are they holding back? And that's just a really simple, simple thing, but it makes your, your learning more structured and more focused. It's not like you have to do really complicated things, but even simple things can have a really big impact. I have to say that I've used that technique. And it's so helpful. Not only do you learn a lot, but it helps you understand the team members and their perspective. Yeah, how strategic are they? How do they think about certain things? How do they think about their role? It also earns a lot of credibility with the team because you come back to the team and say, here's what I learned. I talked to everybody. And by the way, here's some themes I heard. Here's what's going really well. Here's a few things I can maybe want to fix. And there might be some low-hanging fruit. The team's like, wow, hey, this person really listened. Here you go. We, got, we want a coffee in the break room. We don't have it. Now we have it. And everyone thinks you're a hero. 
It's wonderful to hear you doing that. And, and I think I would add that you learn again so much by observing the team as you feed that back to them. Who kind of goes, who leans in. And there's a kind of almost an anthropologist skill set of observing groups and their dynamics. I actually didn't mean this is again, just sort of things I get interested in. I just finished writing a note. I teach at IMD Business School a note, IMD note about understanding how group dynamics work in teams. It's not complicated stuff, but as soon as you tune into it, it's like, whoa, you begin to see these really complex, really interesting and very consequential dynamics that emerge in teams, right? And then you've got the toolbox to start to shape those dynamics. One other thing in your toolbox, Michael, that I think is so important is your STARS model. Like if you walk us through a little bit the STARS model, why it's so important to understand, tell us more about the situation and why that's so important to understand the context that you're working in. It's one of these uh, uh, kind of things like, of course, how you transition into a role depends on the situation you're inheriting, of course. Now, it then becomes really helpful if you've got a way to think about how different situations drive different imperatives. I built up this little framework, STARS framework, startup, turnaround, accelerated growth, realignment, sustaining success. It's not the sum total of all possible situations you could find yourself in. But it's not a bad start. And where you go from then is for, are things like what you just mentioned, right? Do I have alignment with my boss about what I'm up against? Do you think I'm in there to realign things and I get in there and it's a disaster and I need to turn it around? Or the other way around. Do you think I'm in there to clean house and I get in there and, hey, I find there's some really pretty strong pockets of strength in, in the organization and good people that just haven't been led particularly well. So the framework is in part about aligning you and others. I also use it all the time with leadership teams to go through the process of, do we see what state these different parts of the business are in? Are we in alignment about that? So that's part A. Part B is how do you adapt your leadership style to those different situations? Because you're likely to have preferences. You're likely to enjoy doing some more than others, right? I know people who they love turnarounds, but if you put them in a sustaining success situation, it would be like putting them in a room with someone pulling their fingernails down the, the proverbial blackboard and vice versa. So understanding your preferences, understanding how you lead, understanding that if you're in a turnaround, you're going to need to play more of a visionary role. Understanding if you're in a turnaround, you're going to need to move fast and decisively. I think of it as the warrior of ethos. Understanding if you're in a sustaining success situation, your first job is to make sure you don't do damage to this business. You're there as a steward of this business. Now, of course, that's not enough. You've got to then find a way to take it to another level. So there's this whole thing about understanding how you need to lead given the different situations. So that's number two. Number three is you're often going to get a mix of these things. So this helps you make sense of what you're up against and understand how you might want to build your team differently. You've got a piece of your business. Let's say you're, you're managing a group of business units and business unit A is a turnaround. Well, you're going to want someone to turn around leading that for you. And you may have someone there who's a perfectly good leader in realignment or sustaining success, but they're not the turnaround person you need. So the folks have found multiple ways to use the framework. I think it really resonates for people for these sorts of reasons. I think it's a really powerful framework, not only for when you're transitioning in to think about your you know, leadership imperatives and how you're going to get alignment and where you take action, but it's also, I think, interesting for HR people and HR leaders as we hire in leaders to the organization. Are we clear on what our situation is and are we hiring the right leader? Because as you talked about, we may have someone with a great background, they come from the right industry, they've been in the right roles, 
but we're in a turnaround and they've never been in a turnaround before they've been in sustained success. Are they going to be successful? Maybe not. What do we do to either make them successful or maybe we find that person who's done the turnaround and they love it and they're willing to do it. That might be more important. It's a really terrific point. There are organizations who use this as part of their succession planning process to get people to get exposure across multiple business situations. Because if you're developing senior leaders, it's natural to say they need cross-functional experience. It's natural to say they need experience in different divisions. If it's a multi-divisional business, it's natural to say they need, you know, I suppose there's different geographies if it's a global business, but there's this fourth dimension of types of businesses. It's really important to develop top leaders that can manage the whole portfolio because they're probably going to need to. Absolutely. And if you stay with the business long enough, it's probably going to hit one of these different cycles. You said that earlier and it triggered for me when you said that businesses will evolve, right? You may have a business that's in a reasonably successful state, starts to get into trouble, right? That trouble deepens and then it's a turnaround and the leaders that were leading it before are not the leaders you need anymore, right? So that dynamics, again, that you pointed to early, I think is super, super important. Michael, from your perspective, HR obviously can play a big role in this. What is HR's role in helping new leaders transition? And what more should we be doing to have even more impact than we have today? Well, I love the question right off the bat, because I've been on my soapbox for many years talking about why it's important to accelerate everybody taking new roles in organizations and what the benefits are of doing that, right? Of trying to help encourage people to think about taking on board a common framework, a common toolkit, a common language for how everybody makes a transition into a new role. And that's not just onboarding people, although it's certainly used there, but it's those key internal moves you make. You promote somebody or you take someone who's high potential and you make a big bet on them, putting them in a challenging new role. And then it's just crazy to let people sink or swim, right? It's just nuts. But organizations do it still, many, unfortunately. And I think there's a few reasons for it. I think sometimes it's cultural. There's a culture of sink or swim. I sometimes describe it as leadership development via Darwinian evolution. If you're a good leader, you'll survive. If you're not a good leader, we're better off without you, logic. But the business case for speeding up transitions is completely bulletproof. The return on investment is so large to be ridiculous, but still organizations don't do as much as they need to do. More organizations are doing onboarding, but even when they do onboarding, it's more about orientation. Don't get me wrong, orientation is important. But seldom do they do a good job with integration, actually integrating someone into the organization, connectivity, culture. No, it's more work, honestly, to do that, to integrate someone into an organization, but it's hugely valuable if you can do it. Whereas you promote somebody, that's a big change, right? Many things need to change. Your leadership presence needs to change. How you delegate needs to change. How you communicate needs to change. The politics of the new level are going to be different. It's not like that's somehow easy. And again, there's so much you can do to help, help accelerate and enhance people's ability to be successful. And if you do that, then the organization's more successful. I believe everyone who recruits or appoints someone new on their team has a vested interest in that person getting up to speed faster. And it doesn't take a big investment to do that. Simple things like, here's the people you should talk to, and I'm going to drop them a note, so you're going to be coming by and talk about, right? I mean, how hard is that? But it's not, you know, here, here's some key things you need to focus on some resources that'll help you 
learn about the organization. I'm going to take a, an hour in one of our team meetings and really introduce yourself and begin to get to know, but it doesn't happen. A reason I speculate that happens is because it's not clear who owns accelerating transitions. Is that the operating unit's responsibility? Is it talent acquisition where you sometimes see onboarding situated? Is it the HR business partners that should be doing that? Is it learning and development that should take it on? So it's a little bit of the ugly stepchild problem, right? That no one seems to feel like they really want to own that. Maybe because there is some work involved and everybody's pretty busy, but I accelerate everyone. I'll keep saying it. I'll say it as long as I can draw breath, accelerate everyone because there's enormous potential benefits for the organization in terms of performance, in terms of nimbleness from doing it. I don't care if someone uses another framework, honestly, right? I'm going to happen to be partial to my own, of course. But as long as you put in place a common framework, toolkit language that everyone can speak as they go through transitions, STARS model being an example, you're going to have a big impact on the organization. And I know this in part because I've worked with organizations that have done it successfully. I've seen the results. Michael, your point really resonated me when you with me when you talked about the fact that no one owns onboarding. And we sometimes only think executive onboarding really matters when all the onboarding, that acceleration and transition to roller promotion or not. So I think you'd give us a lot to think about. How do we get more accountability and ownership on that? Because it is so critical. If you make it a big investment, you hire an executive recruiting firm to hire an executive. We spend over $100,000 there, bring this person in, and then to expect them to sink or swim and figure out our culture Seems pretty unfair and pretty unreasonable. I mean, if I made a hundred thousand dollar investment in a business, I would work pretty hard to make sure it's successful. But yet sometimes we don't do that with people. So I think the point was well taken, probably given a lot for us to think about. I want to move on though to talk about your new book, which I'm super excited about, the six disciplines of strategic thinking, leading your organization into the future. Tell us why you decided to tackle this important topic. You know, I'd love to tell you a story about how I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my God, the world needs a, a book on strategic thinking, right? But the truth is it was a brilliant editor at Penguin Random House who reached out to me and said, I see this big gaping hole in the literature out there and I think you're the guy to do something about it. I'm not easily flattered, but that was flattering, right? To think about doing that. And so in my wisdom, and there were moments as I went through the process where I kind of went, why did I do this to myself? But I went forward, right? And it proved to be really fascinating. And I think that there really isn't enough out there about strategic thinking. And I think in part, it's just because there isn't even a good definition of what strategic thinking is. It's very much, uh, I know it when I see it, or I, I know when I don't see it, or it's proxy for you're not smart enough to be a senior business leader, something along those lines. So even the act of beginning to think through well, what is strategic thinking and how do we define it? And I ended up defining it, as you kind of alluded to with the title of the book, in terms of these mental disciplines that you need to develop. And I think that's critical, by the way. I came away from this research really believing you can develop your strategic thinking ability. You've got, I think about it as an endowment, a basic set of capability, but it's like so many things. Maybe you're, you have the potential to be the greatest marathon runner in the world, but if you don't train and exercise you're never going to realize that potential, right? And likewise, I think even if, you know, you're a pretty good runner, you can learn to be a better runner, but it takes discipline. And part of it is what experiences you get. One of the paradoxes is it's hard to be seen as a strategic thinker in an organization 
if you don't get a chance to do things that involve strategic thinking, right? Kind of a little bit of a, a proverbial catch-22. And actually, a colleague and I just wrote a short piece that's going to come out in, in Harvard Business Review in the next month or so about speaking like a strategic thinker. Just speaking like you're a strategic thinker, what language you use, because there's a big piece of it about people understanding your capabilities. But then there's the exercises you can do, the mental exercises you can do. I'll just give you a real simple example, right? So one of the six chapters, one of the six disciplines is visioning, looking forward, imagining feasible, but ambitious futures, coming back from there and starting to work your organization on how you get there. Well, there's a simple exercise you can do every time you walk into a new room, look around and ask yourself, how would I change this room to make it more livable? So there's simple little things you can do that kind of start to build the mental muscles. And that's the way I kind of have come to think about it. It's like you got this set of mental muscles you want to be working on. Well, I'm really excited to see this because I think you're great at building frameworks that help us think differently or make complex a little bit more simple. And it sounds like you've done that with strategic thinking, which is probably no easy task. And I love the idea of going to a room and rethink, how could you redesign this room? Because good business leaders see every problem and say, well, how could we redesign this? What are we trying to solve? And is this really helpful? And they start to break things down a little bit. That strategic thinking piece, that critical thinking, that, that's hard to measure. But I'm curious, though, as you look at the six mental disciplines you talk about, which was the easiest to develop and what are probably the most challenging ones to develop? And there's both which was the easiest for me to write about, which was the hardest. <laughs> it's a related piece, right? Really quickly, so the six disciplines, right? So number one, pattern recognition. Unless you can see patterns in the midst of these noisy, complicated, uncertain environments and know what to focus on and what not to focus on, you're going to have a tough time navigating through this. So that's really step one. And that's partially just, well, partially it's immersing yourself <clears throat> deeply enough and long enough in a business to see how the patterns emerge. Partially, it's about working with people who have developed the capacity to see consequential patterns. I talk a little bit about apprenticeship, right? Apprenticing yourself to someone who's good at it. Second one, systems thinking, right? So starting to think in terms of systems and interactions and systems. And if I push this button, this is going to happen. That's going to come popping out over there. I originally was trained, I know this is going to sound weird, but I was originally trained in game theory and decision theory. So that game thinking, a reason forward, a mover to almost the chess master kind of skill, or being able to move between the clouds and the ground, right? Those sort of abilities to do that. By the way, it's another great example, right? It's just, just honing your ability to say, okay, I'm going to step up out of what's happening right here and get up to 60,000 feet, what's going on here? And back down into the details so you can train yourself to do this. So there's a chapter on structure and problem solving, which is really how do you lead teams through processes of strategic problem solving in a disciplined way. So that's beginning to get into the team and the team impact. I mentioned visioning. And the last chapter, I'm going to be super interested what the reaction to it's going to be, because I don't think you think about it when you think strategic thinking, but Political savvy. How do you navigate in complex political environments? How do you build alliances? Because all that wonderful mental machinery is back to what we were talking about, the ideation, implementation. You've got to be able to merge what you're doing into the implementation. And partially that comes through communication. Partially it comes through influence and building alliances. So that's it in, in a nutshell. You asked me which do I think is hardest for people. 
I'd probably say the latter two are the most challenging, right? The visioning and the political savvy, they're challenging. If you're not already endowed with a decent amount of emotional intelligence, for example, it's pretty hard to be good at the political dimensions because so much it rests on me understanding what you care about. What are you trying to do? How does what I'm doing connect to what you're doing? How can I help you? How can you help me? There's an exchange that goes on in organizations. And if you can't tune in, it's tough. And likewise, we talked about visioning, right? That capacity to kind of just take yourself to let's really truly envision where we think we want to go here, right? You've got to work on that. Well, I think it's going to be an incredibly impactful book, not only for HR leaders and hope every HR leader reads this, but just for business leaders overall, I cannot wait for that to come out. I believe it's coming out in January. 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 Yeah. We'll definitely be promoting that again and uh, excited about that. Yeah, Michael, last that. question for you that I asked every guest. What's one word or phrase you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Thought a little bit about this. You're going to be shocked at my choice, but acceleration, I think, is the word I would pick, right? Everything is going to keep speeding up. I'm doing a lot of thinking and writing about the impact of AI these days, as is half the world, right? But the rate of change is just astounding. This continuing acceleration technologically, we're certainly seeing other climate, other issues that are going to continue to challenge us. So your capacity to accelerate yourself into a new role everyone in your organization into a new role. I've been doing a fair amount of work recently also on team acceleration. So how do you really accelerate the ability of a team to come together or deal with the many changes that are going on? Organizational transformation, how do you make organizations more nimble, more agile? That word is a little overused these days, but you know what I mean, right? I look at the world and say, how do we speed up this stuff? Because we're going to need to. So many things are going to be coming at us. Acceleration, I think, perfectly sums up what's happening in the business world today. Michael, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. It was a true pleasure to have you on. I was delighted to be able to have a conversation with you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Michael for sharing his insights on effective leadership transitions and previewing his new book, The Six Disciplines of Strategic Thinking. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Chris Scalia, Chief Human Resources Officer for Hershey, Chris is a forward-looking leader, and in our conversation, we're going to be talking about transformation, why organizations must create capacity for change, and why he believes talent is the ultimate value creator. This is a great conversation and one you won't want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.